Would you open them to John chapter 17? John chapter 17. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. We have one in the pew uh, in front of you, the bench there. You can find a Bible there. Uh, we have a heavy emphasis on, on uh, God's Word here this morning at Holly Grove, as we do every Sunday morning. And so I would invite you to follow along, because these are certainly not my words, uh, but these are God's words, and we want to, uh, I want you to see where they are coming from. So this morning, we, are, we find ourselves again in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, verses 6 through 12. Verses 6 through 12. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I have come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now would the Holy Spirit, with the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminate this text for us so that we not only understand what it says, but know how to apply it to our life. Father, we all know what we believe, but help us to understand why it is what we say we believe. And so, Lord, this morning, as I add some commentary to your word, uh, Father, would you lead, would you guide uh, my words this morning. And Father, it is only you who searches the hearts and the minds. It is only you who knows each and individual one of us because you have created us together in our mother's womb. Father, you know uh, what we need. You know what we're going through. We know the things that trouble us. You know the things that bring us joy. And so, Father, now, uh, would you encourage us this morning uh, with these words? I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus prays for his followers. This morning, I want to start with the bookends from last week's sermon. Last week, I started, or I st uh, yeah, started with the true authority of Jesus and ended with the true aseity of Jesus. Before we can proceed with this prayer of Jesus, we must understand the supreme authority of Jesus. We must understand that Jesus is the only one with true aseity. In, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for Himself. And we have so much to learn in just how Jesus prays for Himself. He starts with His desire that the Father is glorified in the Son and that the Son is glorified in the Father. And Jesus then continues His prayer to the Father by acknowledging, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, and to all that you have given Him, He may give eternal life. It is in this acknowledgement that there are two groups of people that we find here. There is a general group, all flesh. 
And there is a specific group, all whom you have given. Jesus is clearly claiming supreme authority, divine sovereignty. Clearly, there is a specific group of people God has chosen to give to the Son. And at the end of Jesus' prayer for Himself, He begins where He, he started in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. What we must notice at the end of Jesus' prayer for Himself is His claim to eternal existence, true aseity. He always was. Before there was anything, there was Jesus. There was God. There was the Spirit. There was the Trinity. Jesus has all authority. If He was lacking anything, He has the power, all power, to provide it for Himself. But Jesus lacks nothing. Jesus is self-sufficient. Before there was anything, there was the Trinity. There was God. There was Jesus. Do you understand? There is nothing that has not been created by God. There is nothing that has not been created by Jesus. There is nothing that has not been created by the Spirit, by the Trinity. There's nothing that is, that we have, that ever has been, that ever currently is, that ever will be, that isn't because of the supreme authority of God. Before anything was, there was Jesus. Do we understand that? Do we confess that? Do we believe that? That one thought alone should wipe out any self-adulation you may have. And at once, when that realization takes hold, it should drive us to our knees. Your response, my response, should be similar to that of the, the prophets, similar to that of the characters throughout the biblical text when they experienced the awesomeness of God prostrate, face on the ground, spread out before God the Father from the familiar hymn that Kenny led us this morning in Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save in Thou alone. It is in Christ alone that we find ourselves this morning. I again remind you of my disclaimer verse. Many of you are quite familiar with my disclaimer verse. Uh, that may be a neat exercise to, to have someone quote that back to see what, how, how well I'm doing in, 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 in relaying to you my exclaimer, disclaimer verse, but it's in, in Acts 17.11. What does it say? For these Jews, for these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now why were these more noble than those in Thessalonica? Because they received the word eagerly. They were attentive as you are this morning. They took notes. These were definitely note takers. And then they went home to study the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And that's what I always ask of you. 
Listen, it is my whole desire to search, to seek out, to study the Scriptures. Sometimes people may think that I prepare sermons or I prepare throughout the week to bring you a sermon. I do not. I try study and I prepare so that I can know. I first, my first desire is, is for, for me to know. And so this morning, I believe that as I take time to study the Scriptures, that my interpretations are accurate, but they may not be. That's why you too need to study the Scriptures. It doesn't matter if you're here listening to me, listening to a podcast, reading an article, reading a blog, reading or watching a YouTube video from a fantastic communicator online somewhere. You too must search out the Scriptures to see what you are being told is so. That's on you. You are responsible for the things that you believe this morning. And that is my, that is my whole desire. My whole desire is just to be faithful to the text and allow the text take me wherever the text is leading. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 has a very humbling uh, few verses as, as much, much of the biblical text can be. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, um, says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. I mean, that in of itself can be an alarming, but Jesus continues. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And Jesus will say on that day, I never knew you. That's alarming. That is troubling. What is Jesus saying here? What is he trying to communicate to us this morning? Listen, if you say you are saved by what you do, if you are here this morning, you say that you are saved by your works because you prophesy, because you do many good things in, in, in Jesus' name, because you perform miracles. And if you say that in of itself is what is going to save you, and then I would offer you these words of Jesus. And I would offer you the words that Paul gave to the church at Corinth to test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And I know that can sound a bit harsh, and I know that can sound a bit pointed. But listen, as Christian people, as I myself, born and raised up in the church, and I thought that alone was enough to save me. I thought by being a good boy, which I wasn't. You all know my stories well enough, and for those of you who don't, I will no longer repeat them, because God has forgiven me and taken those from His mind, right? Um, but if we think we are saved because of the works that we do, we very well might find ourselves in this position of these people that Jesus is pointing to here in Matthew chapter 7. And so, in these seven verses here this morning, get on with it, right? In these seven verses here this morning, I've only broken them down in, into two parts and I hardly know what to do with them. And so, we'll figure it out as we go along, possibly. But I've broken it down into two parts. Part 1, verses 6 to 8. I mean, it pretty much divides itself, so that's easy enough. Part 6 to 8. Jesus has manifested the Father to those given to Him. It's quite clear. Verses uh, 9 through 12 is part 2. And Jesus intercedes to the Father on behalf of those given to Him. And so it's just broken down quite simply as such. 
And so I want to start, obviously, where I always do, and that is from the beginning, as it was written, I have manifested your name, Jesus says. Now, manifested is not necessarily a word that we use all, all, all the time, uh, necessarily, uh, though it is a, a word that's familiar to us. And so there's no sense spending a lot of time uh, digging into the meaning of the word manifest. We know what it means. And so instead, I would want to offer you, and I want to offer you this morning, the many different ways or the many different verses or references, and I'll only give you a little, I'll limit myself, to a few other places where Jesus also says something similar. Where the biblical authors, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say something very similar. Because we interpret Scripture with in Scripture, right? In Romans chapter 1, verse 19, Paul wrote there to the church in Rome, he said, that which is known about God, is evident. That's our word uh, here uh, written as evident. That that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? For a connecting word. For God has made it evident to them. God has ma- manifested that which is known about God. God has revealed Himself to all people. Man is without women. We are without excuse. This morning, in John chapter 17, verse 4, the text last week, this was some of the work that Jesus had accomplished while he was on earth, was to reveal the name of God to his followers, to those that were given to him by the Father. And so what is in a name? Jesus uses your name three times in this high priestly prayer, the prayer that we call the high priestly prayer. In verse 6 of our text today, manifest your name. Verse 11 in our text today, keeping them in your name. Verse 12, also in our text here this morning, <clears throat> that uh, keeping them in your name, that you have kept them in your name. And so three times we see the name being used here the, this morning. But yet we must remember, <clears throat> or, or we must be reminded, and we know this, right, that it is not the name of God that is being spoken of here as much as who the name represents, right? So so who the name represents. And, and if you were going to follow this thread throughout the biblical text, you can do so by referring to your cross-reference there in, in the margin of your Bible possibly or in the back somewhere. And you can follow that. Many times, name is synonymous with the actual person, the actual being, and here in this case being, being God that is being spoken of. In Romans chapter 9, verse, verse 17, the Bible says that, that God raised up Pharaoh. Why? So the name of God would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Again, it is not the name that is as much known as it is the person, the character the, uh, of Jesus, the, who the name represents, right? So, so when it's speaking of, I have manifested your name, what Jesus is saying, I have revealed the Father to those you have given me. I have made you known to them. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, we are told. Again, it's not at the, the, the name that we are going to bow, is it? But at the person. It's who the name represents. And we must, we must uh, uh, remember that and know that. And we, we do, right? And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the Ten Commandments tells us, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh, in vain. Why? Not because of the name, but because of the, who the name represents. Who the name represents. You know, I guess coming here, coming all the way across the hermeneutical bridge, if you want, to 2021, and many of us, 
Uh, it's not, we're not unique in 2021, then we'd be in the year zero, if you will. Uh, uh, we take great pride in our name, do we not? Our name is something that is important to us. It's important to you. It's important to me. We go to great lengths to defend our name. And depending what your name is, especially for Mennonite, but never mind. Uh, depending what your name is, it adds more importance or not. You know, it was an interesting time many, many years ago uh, going to, to a Mennonite church, and we needed a new pastor there. Uh, and I remember the pastor that was brought in to candidate there, and I've told this story before, but it fits so well here. I, I can't help myself. i got to tell it again. Uh, uh, and he came in, and he, he was Baptist. <laughs> he was a Baptist pastor. Well, you know, in those days, you don't really, as a Mennonite church, hire a Baptist pastor, but that was done. And, and when he came to the pulpit, he started with this. He said, all my years of preaching, all my years of seminary, I never knew it was Adam Yoder and Eve Miller. I never knew that. And of course, the church roared with laughter, and some of you will get that and others won't, and he was in. I mean, he was in. He had the job. That's all he needed to acknowledge the importance of a name. And in that church and in that community, the name Yoder and the name Miller, that's why I married a Miller. Did you know my wife was a Miller? Oh yeah, that's a good name. You know, it was the importance of a name. Right? And so we get that. It's no different when God defends His name. When God talks about His name. And that's what Jesus is, is saying here today. Is I have manifested your name and maybe we should be more worried about the name of God than our own name sometimes. Right? As we think about our position on this planet. So anyways, to whom did Jesus manifest your name? What does the biblical text tell us? I have manifested your name to the men, to the people that you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me. So whom did Jesus manifest your name to? Well, to the elect, to those that God has chosen to give to the Son. Jesus made known the Father, not to all, but only those who were given to Him by the Father. Now this is first a direct, a direct, uh, uh, a direct, um, Meaning a direct link, if you will. What's the word I'm looking for? A direct link to the disciples, right? To those 11, to those 12 actually, but here it was down to 11. So it was directly speaking that Jesus was talking to them. But indirectly, it is for all that we're going to see later in Jesus' prayer. For all those who come to Christ is who Jesus is speaking of here. So that's who He's being spoken of here. Those who are chosen by the Father are what? Those who are the elect. I know we don't like that word elect, but it's a biblical word, and so I'm going to use it. Um, and so, so those, uh, those who are chosen, those who are elected by the Father are who? Right? That's always the question. And that's always the crux of the matter. That's always, uh, it's always the rub. Well, the Bible tells us who that is. Those who keep His Word. That's who it is. I mean, that's exactly what the text will tell us. In, in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you will continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples. You are truly My disciples. Come to know. Before it can be in the heart, it must be in the head. And that's what is being spoken of right here this morning. In, in verse 7, it echoes the words of Peter from John chapter 6. To whom shall we go, Peter said. Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and have come to know right, that you are the Holy One of God. 
There was a process the disciples went to. And they came through that process and they realized that it is God alone who has the words of eternal life. Before it can be in the heart, it needs to be in the head. It starts there. In verse 8, who are the elect? Those who receive and truly understood and believed Jesus is the Messiah. This is where this is what the text is telling us this morning. For the words which I gave you, Jesus, uh, 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 the words that I, the words which you gave me, Jesus says, okay, Father, you gave me the words to say. I gave, I've given it to them. They received them. They truly understood that I came forth from you, and they what? And they they believed that you sent me. These are the ones that Jesus is speaking of. They received, they understood, and they believed. You want to be part of the elect? There's the formula right there, if you will. You must receive, you must understand, and you must believe. Let's not get hung up too much on some of those words that can cause uh, some problems. They can be problematic for some. We, we, don't, we don't need that. It's, it's quite clear as to what Jesus is teaching and preaching here uh, this morning. In Matthew chapter 13, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, see here we come to this idea of, of not understanding. So when anyone hears the words of the kingdom, Jesus is saying, and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, the devil, uh, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown on the road. Remember the, the parable of the sower. And as they came along and as he sowed the seed, some of it fell on rocky soil. Some of it fell on good soil. Here he's speaking about the rocky soil and what happened. It tells us that the word that it sprung up. It says that he, the, the, it sprung up. One of the seed, the seed was sown on the rocky soil and the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, accepts it, believes, superficially as we're going to see. In verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, 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 now listen, this is why I pound on the pulpit, um, hypothetically speaking, I'm not a pulpit pounder. Um, but this is why I, I pound on, on, on the pulpit over and over and over again. It is not good enough to know what you believe. Everybody, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist, agnostic, a Buddhist, Hinduism, whatever your faith beliefs are, it does not matter what they are. You know exactly what you believe. Very few people truly understand and can truly articulate why they believe it. And this is why it's so important. Because you know what? Sometimes life does turn cold and rainy. <laughs> Not a good beach day. Sometimes things don't go the way you want it to go. And sometimes hard things happen in life and you ask that why question of God. And if you have not flushed some of these things out, if that seed has fallen on that shallow, superficial soil, it will burn out. It will fade away. It will die out. That's why we hear these deconstruction stories. I'm firmly convinced that because they haven't fully flushed through these things. And why, first of all, am I truly saved? And then, of course, have I flushed out? Why do I believe these things? Listen, it is so, so important. Maybe not in the moment, but the time will come where you will need to answer, where you will need to know that. Not, not that a particular knowledge 
We're not agnostic. We're not, we're not, we're not teaching Gnosticism here. It's not about a special knowledge. It's not about understanding a formula. That's, that's, not, that's not at all what we're saying here this morning either. But we must understand why we believe what it is that we believe it is. Many things don't go as we think they should. And when that happens, what do we do? Well, it's not just for us. It's also for the disciples. Um, I also want to turn to Luke chapter 24 this morning. And to give you a, an example, you know, because sometimes we, we look at the characters of the Bible and we, we lift them to a position that they've never been meant to be lifted to. And we see that we can't necessarily relate to them because they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They had, they, they had lunch together with Jesus. They've seen all the things that they've done, and yet they had their struggles as we see. Remember, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he, hasn't, he hadn't ascended yet to the Father, and he was gone for a few of those days, and, and the disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes along and interacts and hides his identity there from them. And I want to jump in at that point uh, and pick up the story there in Luke chapter 24, verse 19, where Jesus said to them, because they said, hey, haven't you heard about the things that are going on? Where have you been? You like living under a rock? Oh, I see. You're not on social media. You didn't see what happened, right? But let me tell you what happened. The things about Jesus, which the Nazareth was the prophet, mighty indeed, they said, and the word in sight of God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him over to be sentenced of death and crucified. Now listen, here it is. Here comes the but. But we were hoping that he was, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Well, what am I saying? Here come some of the disciples. Can you just feel it in the text? Can you feel the disappointment? Can you feel as though they have been misled by this person they were following for three long years? They left everything. They gave it all. And they followed Jesus, and here they're coming to realize that evidently we were wrong. But evidently, they, they speak in past tense. We had hoped that this was the ruler of Israel. We had hoped that this is the Messiah the prophets had promised was to come. But now it's three days later already. Obviously, he's dead, right? It's been three long days. That's to where we find ourselves sometime in our Christian faith, do we not? Sometimes we find us in that very same position. God, I thought I heard you clearly. God, I thought this is what you wanted for my life. Father, I, I, I prayed, I surrendered. We do all those Christianese things, right? And yet at the end of the day, it didn't turn out as we thought. And we're like, God, do you hear me? Are you there? Do you understand? See, we are not alone when we find and face those troubles. The disciples also face discouragement and they also face disappointments. But now, let's, let's come back to our text here this morning. And let's continue to dig just a, just a little bit deeper. Um, and that is about this, this idea of this doctrine of election. It is hard for many to accept. And, and I'm not interested in pushing it too hard because the important thing is that you come to believe. This is not a salvific issue. You don't have to adhere to this doctrine that, that, that I'm saying is taught here, but, but you must come to believe. 
And so I don't want that to be a trip. I don't want that to be a, be a hang-up for anyone this morning. I'm just saying what the text is saying. And, and Jesus is saying that the Father has given these people to you. Well, what does that say? Obviously, the plain meaning of the text, that's what it says. But I, that's, not where, that's not what I want you to focus in on this morning. What I want to push hard on this morning. And, and what I think you must believe, though again, you must not, is not a salvific, it's not a, not, a, not a pillar of our faith. Um, but I want you to see the context, the content, I should say, of this intercessory prayer of Jesus. In verses 9 through 12, we have it. Jesus intercedes to the Father on behalf of those given to Him. This, I think, can bring encouragement uh, for your life this morning. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God, who what? Who intercedes for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, He lives, Jesus lives to make intercession for them. For who? For His followers, right? In 1 John chapter 2, as John finds himself as an old man, as I've said before, like a great-grandfatherly type. And he says this, My little children, do you hear the heart? My little children, I am writing these things to you. Why? So that you may not sin. And he goes on to say, acknowledging that we all do sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, my friends. This is the intercessory prayer of Jesus. Every single one of us make mistakes. Every single one of us misses the mark. Every single one of us sins. Every single one of us fails. If you don't think I fail, uh, which I, you know, I don't know why you would think that, but ask my wife. She'll list all my, she'll list them for you, right? And every single person here can do that this morning. And yet in this intercessory prayer of Jesus, He is praying for you. He's praying for me. Knowing that we fail. Knowing that we trip up. Knowing that there's just... It's like, oh, it's like we can't help ourselves at times, right? This is the high priestly prayer. And this high priestly prayer in this particular portion of Scripture is only for the elect. Is only for those that God has given to Jesus. Jesus does not pray, pray this on behalf of the world. Listen to what He says. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I ask on their behalf. Now, now let, let me just stop for a moment right there a little bit. Okay, let me, let me go off and do a footnote for a moment maybe. So, so when we pray, we pray as we best know how, right? We pray as we, we best think and we put our wishes, our concerns, our petitions before God. And sometimes, you know, we'll hear words as such as this and maybe you have used them yourself. Well, God just didn't answer my prayer. No, no, no. God answers all prayers. And what we mean by that is that God didn't answer them the way that I had hoped or that I had wished or that I had wanted. It doesn't mean that God doesn't answer our prayers. But do you think that's how Jesus prays? Do you think that... Jesus prays in a hopeful manner such as we do at times? I don't think so. He says, I ask on their behalf. He, he already knows in the asking exactly the outcome of His ask. And He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. 
This is what Jesus is praying. But those whom you have given me. Why? For they are yours, he says. That's why I'm praying on their behalf. See, see, I, I do, I, I, you know, there's the general and there's the specific. Jesus prays for those specific here in this intercessory prayer this morning in verse 9. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he continues in verse 10. And he continues in verse 10 and he says, and all things are mine, or all things are yours. See, there again, he acknowledges the supreme authority that he has with the Father. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now, this is speaking of the deity of Jesus, the co-equal, the co-eternal. This is not written the way your relationship may be with your spouse. Right? What's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. Or Wait a minute, I got that wrong. Uh, what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours. That's right. Um, right? Right? So, right? We kind of work through those little scenarios as we attempt to live life together with our spouse. Right? But that's not the scenario that Jesus, that's not what Jesus is, is acknowledging here. But he is truly acknowledging the co-equal, the co-eternal, the co-existent with God. If you are a Christian this morning, it is because God the Father has given you to the Son. This is verse 10. This is verse 10. Let's move on here to verse 11, where Jesus continues in this prayer. And He says, I am no longer in the world. Well, that's interesting, because they could see Him, and they could hear Him, and again, He's speaking as this has already taken place. I mean, again, we see the prayer of Jesus. He is fully aware of the outcome of this prayer. He is praying to the Father, and many times throughout the Scriptures we are told Jesus went off to pray. Why did He choose to pray this one out loud and have it recorded for us today? I think we need to take special note of that. And so He says, I am no longer in the world. <laughs> he fully realizes, acknowledges, He knows exactly what's ahead. And yet, they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Even as we are one. This is the will of the Father. This is the will of Him who sent me. That all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And see, I want you to notice in this verse that is written down here for us. He says that, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's imperative. That's a statement. That's a statement of fact. Keep them in your name. This is of vital importance. If you want to get all theological, you could call it perseverance of the saints. Uh, you know, this, this is exactly what Jesus is praying here for all the believers, for all those who are going to come and who are in Him. That they may be one even as we are one. Now this is not speaking of unity. We'll get to that at the end of the prayer. This is speaking of the security that Jesus has in the Son. This is the same thing He wants for you and I. He wants for you and I to have 
this same security that He has with the Father. This is the prayer that He has for you and I, for those who are His followers here this morning. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, My sheep hear My voice. I reference this verse so often. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them. Now listen. And they will never perish. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Listen, this is the encouragement for the believer this morning. For those of us who struggle, for those who us trip up, for those of us who our humanity comes through at times and we wonder, God, how can I ever be a Christian? How can I ever even be saved? I keep stumbling. I keep tripping. Of course, I don't share it with anybody. Of course, I don't tell anybody. Of course, I come with the right face on. Of course, I come and I know the right words to say. I know the right uh, the, the, the right mode, the right the way that I'm supposed to act, right? But inside, I'm wrestling with this. And God, I wonder, can I even be saved? Well, listen, for you here, this fellow struggler this morning, these words should have great, great comfort. I don't, I don't know why I get so much pushback back on this. I'm not sure why someone, why someone wants to refuse the great comfort that is being taught here this morning for the Christian, especially as we come to the Lord's table this morning. This is exactly why we come to the Lord's table, acknowledging what He has done for us that we could not possibly do for, this, for ourselves. We don't come this morning and, 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 and assume that this is the actual blood and body of Jesus. No, it's a remembrance. It's acknowledging what He has done on behalf of you, right? That is the celebration the Christian has this morning. As Paul himself said in Romans 8, for I am convinced, and then he has this great big paragraph, he lists all these things, and he ends with, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now, do you think there's something left out of that nothing? What's left? You think you're left out of the nothing? But you think you can separate yourself from God? Right? This is the confidence that the believer can have in Christ. Well, let us move along here to, to verse 12. And in ver verse 12, it says this. Jesus says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. He says, not one of them perished. Not a single one did I lose. None of them, none of them did I lose. None of them did I lose track of. None of them didn't I go after. None of them did I hold fast within my hand. I guarded them and not a single one of them perished. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells this to Timothy. I know as Paul is getting ready to exit this world, as his head is going to be severed from his body, he says, Timothy, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him when? Until that day. Until that day. Listen, what we have entrusted to God, which speaking here is our life, right? Is our very self. That will be secure until that day. It is eternal security that we have. Now for some of you students of, of the Bible, 
you're already saying, yeah, but you didn't continue to read the whole text. Well, as you know me, I'm going to. And I guarded them, and none of them perished. Ah, but here we have a but. But the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Now listen, friends, that's troubling, is it not? I mean, we must acknowledge and we have to acknowledge that's troubling. And, I, and, I, and, and we can wrestle with what to totally do with that. But again here, we don't totally understand God, right? That's why I like to start with the Creator of all, who obviously knows better than the created. But nonetheless, what do we do with Judas? Was Jesus 11 for 12? That's not a bad batting average. Is that a batting average? Hmm. You know, that's not bad. Right? 11 for 12. Okay, that's pretty good, Jesus. You only lost one. No, that's not what the Scripture tells us, though, does it? What does the Scripture tell us? So that. Of course, the so that is going to answer what just came before it, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Well, that was the plan from the beginning. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's where we surrender ourselves to, to God, right? How do, we, how do we work through those things? That's difficult. That is challenging. But of course, there's, there's things that we can learn from this. And there's things that we must ask of ourselves here this morning. And just, just a few points on Judas. Uh, Judas was, was never a true follower. I mean, I mean, he had a prominent position within the disciples, but he was never a true follower. He was indeed an imposter. And Judas knew how to play the game. Judas was a churchman. Judas knew how to play the game. He had the money back. He was the treasurer of the church. He was the, the, the lead elder of the church. However, the structure of this church was organized in the day. I know it wasn't an organized church. Um, but he was the man. He was there. And yet Judas was never one of the twelve. He was never there. So, we must lay that aside because those are some questions we cannot answer. But again, I want to circle around and I want to come back to the encouragement that I, that I promised you and hopefully I didn't mislead you. But that is the security that we have in Christ. Those who have surrendered their heart and life to Christ, those who have done that, those who follow the teachings, those who follow His words, those who endure to the end have that eternal security in Christ. There's nothing that we did for God to save us. There's nothing that we can do for God to unsave us. This is what we have as believers. Would you like it another way? Would you like to take argument with God on that? I'm not sure why a person would. Because for us and for myself, I often find myself at this point right here and take great comfort in knowing that me as a greatly flawed human being, can have this and can claim this, that God, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I did to earn your grace, your free gift, and you're not just going to take it away from me either. Because once again, I was James. <laughs> right? doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean say I can do whatever I want. All those things would certainly define an unbeliever, not a believer. I find no greater joy than to know that those who are in Christ are secure for all eternity in Christ. This is what we celebrate this morning as we come to the Lord's table. This is why we gather on the fifth Sunday of every month and are reminded 
of what Christ has done for us that we could never, ever possibly do for ourselves. And if that doesn't bring true joy to the heart of a Christian, then I don't know. I don't know whatever will or may. Father, I ask Your blessing upon these words. And, and Father, as I often pray, and, and, and maybe this morning more than ever so before, Father, those things that are from You, those things that are, that are accurately deduced, accurately interpreted, exegeted from this text, Father, would those things stay within our minds and with our hearts? Father, those things that, that are not, Father, would You just strike those things from our memory, from our mind, and from our heart? And Father, we do thank You this morning as we come to this Lord's table, come to Your table, the table that You prepared, the table that You planned for us. And Father, as we think about Your life, as we think about how You lived it, as we think about how You modeled it, how You did not just love uh, uh, Your friends, but You even loved Your enemies, and You ask us to do the same. And so, Father, You have left us this ultimate model, this ultimate picture for us to follow. And as we celebrate uh, this morning, as we remember the work that You've done upon the cross on our behalf, what we could not do for ourselves, Father, would it indeed bring great joy to our life? And Father, if there's someone here this morning that may be wrestling with that very thought, am I saved? Am I one of those that are belong to the Father? Father, I pray that You would bring this assurance to their heart and mind. That in those moments of doubt, in those moments of question, Father, those questions in and of themselves are proof in and of themselves that we are Yours. Because if we're not, we wouldn't even care. And so, Father, I pray uh, that Your Spirit would continue to have its way in our life individually and corporately as a church. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.